Before we hear the word of God, let's uh, bow our head and let's uh, ask the Spirit for illumination. Let's pray. God, we come to you today to receive your word. And Lord, receiving your word is a way in which we recognize that the words that come out of your mouth are what is essential for our lives. The authority that is in scripture is something that we bow down to and humble ourselves to. And so, Lord, may you speak to our hearts as we listen to your word, as we hear your word, as we interpret your word. May the Spirit be with us in all those aspects so our meditation and interpretation is holy and pleasing to you. So, Lord, speak to us, convict us, and transform us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it might be a little hard to see, but I'll, I'll read it for us. Um, Acts chapter 4 is our, is our uh, scripture reading for today. It's a little long, so maybe what we'll do is we'll read until verse 22. And then... Um, Actually, let's read the whole thing. We'll read the whole thing. This is Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John, I don't think this is on the slide, uh, I'll, I'll read for us anyways. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite man from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God for us today. Amen. That was a long scripture reading. <clears throat> around five years ago i remember reading a very strange news article around five years ago so maybe 2015 2014 something like that in fort lauderdale maybe you remember this a man an old man he was 90 years old he was arrested for feeding homeless people do you guys remember that story maybe some of you don't and the reason why they arrested this man was because a new piece of legislation was put in place and it said that charitable food sharing was no longer legal other types of food sharing was legal like you could have food at a birthday party if you go to someone's house the host can provide food if you go to a sporting event you can have food there but it became illegal to give food in a charitable sense so by extension the homeless Officials say that it had to do with an outbreak of hepatitis A that was being spread among that time through contaminated food. And so they claim that this legislature was put in place to protect people from hep A. 
But many people, many people believe the reason was to push the visibly homeless people out of the public spaces and out of the city, especially because of how the word, because of how the policy was worded. And so in the end, many people concluded that it really had to do with this kind of visible presence of homeless people in the city, making people feel uncomfortable or maybe making people feel threatened or even bringing down the property value in the city. And that for the government, it was worth letting these people starve. It was worth kicking these people out of the city if it meant saving the image of the city. Sometimes, because the world is so against the values and virtues and character of God, we're often faced with dilemmas. Jesus teaches us to feed the hungry, right? Jesus instructs us to maintain and uphold the dignity of all people. Jesus tells us to live by kingdom ethics, but what happens when the authority what happens when our worldly and seemingly more imminent governing body tell the, tells us to do something that is in direct violation and is directly against the values of God, who is our supreme authority? Well, this 90-year-old man, along with two other local pastors, they were arrested not once, but twice. They went to jail. They were fined. They came out. They fed the homeless again. They were arrested again for feeding the homeless. For this man, not only did he disagree with the new laws and policies that were put in place, but he also said it was very discriminatory and unjust, and therefore by abiding by it, by obeying those laws, he would perpetuate the inhumane nature of the law. And so they got in trouble for doing something good. They got in trouble for feeding the homeless. Two months of jail time and $500 fine for, he, for feeding the homeless. From our scripture reading today in Acts 4, we see this kind of reaction from the authorities as well. And it's nothing new. It's nothing new. In history, many tyrants have misused their power and authority to push a certain kind of agenda, even if it meant that people were going to be dehumanized, even if it meant that they might be ostracized or discriminated against and have their dignity destroyed. And we Christians need to understand this is especially important for us because at one point Christendom, that is the Christian kingdom, people who were leading and acting in the name of Jesus also at one point perpetuated this dehumanization and this persecution and this ostracization of the marginalized. What is ironic about our reading today is that the church at one point in history wielded this apex of authority. This is something that we need to own up to today. And it's a shame that we Christians in the, 21st, in the 21st century inherit, even if we didn't personally do these things. And with the repentant heart, we need to better align ourselves to the will of God. And there's something about religious authority that is appealing to those who are hungry for principalities and 
power. But we see that's not what faith is about. We see in today's reading that Christianity was in fact at one point a victim of this kind of abuse of power. And when Christianity had no worldly power, in a way, it became faith in its truest form because only then could the church resemble the suffering God. And we read this in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what we need to first understand before we deep a little bit deeper is we have to understand why this is happening. Why? What's happening? We need to do a little recap of Acts chapter 3. For those of you who joined us in our Bible study this week, we know that a miraculous healing took place. There was a man who was lame for 40 years. He was lame for 40 and he wasn't a loser for 40 years. It means that he couldn't walk for 40 years. And so he couldn't walk for 40 years since birth. And he was placed at the temple gate by a certain people, maybe his family or his group of friends, which was called Beautiful. And he was placed there so that he could beg for money, most likely because no one would hire him because he can't walk. Well, one day Peter and John are walking by and they lock eye contact. And this man expecting something asks them for money. But Peter and John say, we have no money, but what we do have will give you in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And the Peter takes the man's right hand and pulls him up, and the man is able to walk. And so we have to think about this. This man who is over 40 years old, he's over 40 years old. He couldn't walk from birth. So imagine what his legs would be looking like. My grandmother, who's been in a wheelchair, she can walk, but she's in a wheelchair. It's more comfortable for her. For only about six years, she was in a wheelchair. But the muscles on her legs are so severely atrophied and it's so thin that she can no longer use them properly. And that's only six years. So imagine this man who's never, ever used his legs. He couldn't even get up. And so if Peter had lifted him up, he would not be able to stand on his own because he had no developed muscle. But the glory and majesty of God doesn't care here. The name of Jesus doesn't care here. Beyond all expectation, beyond all that is possible, not only is this man's legs healed, but his feet and ankles and legs become strong. It's fully restored. It's not just the healing. It's just not the preventing of a degenerative disease, but it is a full restoration. The muscles are strengthened. The sinews are strengthened so that he doesn't just stand but we read that he walked around and he was jumping for joy and praising God. It's a full biological, physiological restoration that happened to this man in such a short span of time that the people are just so utterly amazed. They can't believe their eyes. They're like, what did we just see? And so Peter begins to preach. And we're in the middle of chapter 3 now. Peter begins to preach. He says that the Messiah that you killed is actually the one that was able to restore this man. And so as Peter is preaching the gospel, this is when it is at this precise moment when the priests and the captain of the guard 
and the Sadducees come in and stop the party. They kick the door down and say, what is going on here? What's going on? So a little bit of an overkill is in, if you imagine what this is today, it's like all the police staff and the chief of police himself, and it's all these government officials in black suit show up at your little stand because you're feeding the homeless guy. We read that the authorities were greatly disturbed with what was happening, and we have to understand why it is they were being disturbed. Because at the end of the day, nothing was being done wrong, an act of kindness was being shown, but the Sadducees still had a problem with it. Certainly, that can't be the reason why the authorities were upset, was it? It's not like the Sanhedrin is hell-bent on making people's lives miserable, but it had to do with what the Sadducees believed. The Sadduceic order was a Jewish sect that came from the priestly line. So they were descendants of Aaron, and as such, they worked in the temple. But not only did they work in the temple, but they actually controlled the temple and had complete authority over it. And what they had authority over was a central location of worship for all the Jews. So all the Jews in Tassar would come back to the temple. And so the people of the Sanhedrin had quite a bit of power. And this was God-given authority, mind you, because God anointed the line of Aaron. And so they considered themselves to be very traditional Jews. They were very conservative, which means they only believed in the written Torah. So they not only rejected the orally transmitted Torah, but also the sayings of the father. So it had to be the first five books where you're making things up. And you could read through the first five books. You could read through the Torah right now. You could read it as much as you want, but there's no mention of the resurrection. There's no mention of the resurrection in the first five, five books of our Old Testament. And so naturally, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a personal Messiah. It was all hocus pocus to the Sadducees. What they did believe in, though, was in the messianic age, which they thought was right now in the present. And so everything must be preserved exactly the way that things are. They had to keep things exactly the way that things are, and nothing can be changed even a little bit. Sounds like some people in the church today and so more often than not, they would butt heads with the Pharisaic order. The Sadducees and Pharisees would butt heads because they believed in different things. And Sadducees also butt heads with other Jewish sects that were liberal or regarded texts outside of the Torah as something that was divinely inspired or anyone that believed in a personal Messiah. And so the Sadducees were quite against a lot of people. So now you can see why the Sadducees are disturbed. Because they were sad, you see? Do you get it? Okay, that was lame. From their Sadducee worldview and their vantage point, when they saw Peter and John, these were two nobodies who were unschooled, ordinary men who were by the temple gates, and they were preaching about a Messiah that doesn't exist. They were preaching about a resurrection that is not possible. And they're pointing to this ultimate state of restoration that can only come from Yahweh. Who do these two guys think they are coming into our temple with all this garbage? And the worst part is that Peter and John are crediting this miracle to Jesus. The name of Jesus, 
who the Sadducees and the religious leaders were instrumental in crucifying. To make matters worse, Scripture tells us that after this miracle took place and after people heard what Peter had to say, that the people who believed from 3,000 at the time of Pentecost grew to around 5,000. And our scripture reading says 5,000 men. Literally, that's a male. 5,000 males. So there were more likely more than 10,000 believers at that point. So maybe 4,000 people began to believe this day when they saw this miracle and they heard Peter's sermon. And so alarm bells are going off for the Sadducees. The Sadducees are in this panic mode. It's like act now and think later. And so they immediately arrest Peter. They immediately arrest John for the nonsense they're uttering. And they keep them in prison overnight. I thought this was really weird that they kept them in prison overnight. Maybe it's because they wanted them to suffer a bit. But my commentary tells me that judgments involving life or death usually had to begin and end at 4 p.m. It had to happen during the day. And so my guess is maybe when Peter and John were detained that it was actually a matter of a death sentence. I'm not sure. Maybe what they were preaching and what they were doing was so abhorrently outrageous to the Sadducees and to the governing authorities that they even considered putting them to death. They even considered putting them to death. The next day they gathered and they asked Peter and John. Now we're back at chapter 4. They asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name do you do this? Did you catch that? They say this. By what power do you do this? This what? This healing? This caring for the marginalized? This act of kindness. They don't even want to recognize the good that came out of Peter and John. They don't even want to recognize the full physical restoration of this man who was lame for 40 years of his humanity and his livelihood because they are not happy about the way that it was done. They can't argue that good happened, but they're not recognizing the good because the way that the way the way in which the good had come undone had come across effectively contradicts what their doctrinal understanding of scripture is. And you know, sometimes people will just do that. Sometimes they'll just totally disregard the objective good that you do just because it's done in the wrong way. And that's a burden. That's the burden that we Christians have to bury, we who are an exclusive and stubborn and proud people. Here's a really cool connection, though. If you look at Luke chapter 20, verse 2, if you have your scriptures turned to Luke chapter 20, verse 2, and we talked about how Luke and Acts were written by the same person. And so Luke is volume one and Acts is volume two. And so oftentimes there's going to be this thematic connection between the two. If you look at Luke chapter 20, verse two, that day, Jesus turns over all the tables at the temple. Jesus is angry. He's mad. He turns over all the tables and then they ask him. They ask him in Luke 20, verse two, they say, by what authority 
are you doing these things? And so the exact same question that the chief priests once asked Jesus is now being asked of Peter and John. So Peter, this cowardly and foolish man with no spine, now became the same level of threat as Jesus to the religious leaders. And I thought that was just a really cool example of a transformation in someone's life when we become sanctified and we become conformed to the image of Christ. But anyway, Peter now becomes filled with the Holy Spirit that's what we read in scripture. And this is a separate occasion from the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that happened at Pentecost. But it is this instant and intense presence or an abnormally strong working of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes on Peter and Peter has no fear. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of possible death. And so Peter stands up for what he believes to be right. And he says, if by this, because if Sadducees ask, what are you, in whose name are you doing this? Peter says, if by this, you mean this act of kindness. So he's saying, are we really getting in trouble for something good that we did? And if you're asking how this man was restored, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but who God raised from the dead. Bam, bam, bam. And what happens is there's three things. Peter hits all three things in the Sadducees checkmark, checking, checklist that says don't do these things. They're do not list. And it's talking about a personal Messiah. It's talking about the resurrection. And it's talking about divine restoration. And both Jesus and Luke 20 and Peter and John in Acts 4 respond to the questioning of the chief priests by quoting Psalm 118. And Jesus and Peter and John respond in the same way. And they say, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And that is the mic drop because the Sadducees recalled Jesus's answer. Peter said that Jesus is the cornerstone. We just saying cornerstone. Well, we might ask, Jesus is the cornerstone of what? The cornerstone was a first piece, often the biggest piece. It was a piece of rock. It was quite literally a cornerstone or a capstone, other translations have it, that was put down when they were starting a new construction project. And it basically determined the straightness of the wall. And it determined the perfect perpendicular kind of 90 degree angle of the building. And so when we ask, what is Jesus the cornerstone of? What comes to mind? What is Jesus the cornerstone of? Is he the cornerstone of the church? Is he the cornerstone and the fulfillment of Judaism? Is Jesus the cornerstone of faith? Or could we say, if Jesus was there from the very beginning, if Jesus pre-existed creation as it is testified in the Gospel of John, and if it was for Jesus, and if it was through Jesus all the universe and cosmos came to be, then couldn't we understand Jesus as 
the cornerstone of everything in the universe. Even the cornerstone of the concept of governing authority. And here, Peter summarizes one of the most essential elements of the gospel in verse 12, Acts 4, verse 12. This is a very powerful uh, passage. So remember, this salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That is quite the claim that Peter is making. This means that Peter is saying, the only way, the only way to salvation, the only way to the glimpse of the restoration you saw in the man that was healed, the only way is disclosed to us by God, and that is through Jesus. Jesus is the only way we know how, is what Peter and John is saying. They're not even concerned with the fact that there might be other ways because the only way they know is through Jesus because that's what God had revealed. If you think about it, people's eternity is on the line. Separation from God is not some 20-year sentence and then you're free, but it's an eternal separation from God. And so what we do now, how we live our lives now, how we preach the gospel today determines how the people in our sphere of influence spends the rest of their eternal lives. And Christians get a lot, a lot of flack for being such elite exclusivists. People think Christians are so exclusive. They're so stubborn and narrow-minded. There's only one way to salvation. And this issue is twofold. For the times that Christians are actually being exclusive, like we only hang with ourselves, first of all, we are in the wrong. That's not what Jesus teaches. But secondly, Jesus was actually never exclusive in his public ministry, especially in how Luke tells it. This seeming exclusivism is not for the sake of keeping people out, we are called to be inclusive. We are called to be witnesses. Here comes Acts 1.8 again. To be witnesses in all of Jerusalem, to all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That means everybody. That is the full inclusivity of Jesus. That it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you're slave or if you're free. That the gospel and God has absolutely no favoritism and God wants to reach out and reconcile and bring all of creation back into a loving relationship into an intimate relationship with him and so we must not exclude people from the accessibility of the gospel we must not limit people and we must not exclude people from the accessibility of God's self-pouring love and frankly our self-pouring love because Jesus did not exclude people and Jesus instructed us and commanded us uh, commanded us to proclaim the good news to all of creation but people still think that the Christian faith 
has to do with exclusivity. Even Christians think that the Christian faith has to do with exclusivity. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Let's just think in terms of um, the medical realm. I got, I got gout last week. I, can't, I still can't believe I got gout. I'm just 29, and it was extremely p- painful. I could barely stand. I was explaining a little bit last week. In Korea, it's called tongpung, and what that means is it's called supposedly tongpung because it's supposed to kind of reference that even a slight breeze on the affected area will bring such agonizing pain. And so I was dealing with this gout not knowing what it was, not knowing how to treat it, not knowing what I could do to make it go away. And so I had to go get professional help. I had to go talk to somebody who knew what they were doing. And that somebody just happened to be a physician. I went to my family doctor and what she told me was that my gout was a result of X, Y, Z. And so to combat gout, I have to really change my lifestyle. And it involves things like not eating red meat, which I love. I love lamb, goat, beef, pork. I love everything. It involves me not eating fermented things, which I love. I love kimchi, anything pickled. And you know, fermented drinks are things that I have to avoid, if you know what I mean. I could not eat legumes, which actually make up the biggest portion of my diet. And I had to stay away from fruity candies and fruity juices. I was like, what? What the beat, man? Doctor, are you kidding me right now? What can I eat? What can I eat? And I can't say to the doctor, no, 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 no. You don't understand, doctor. I am a meat eater. Are you a meat eater? Well, I'm a meat eater. You know that I am a meat eater. I need to eat meat to survive. You don't know my needs. You don't know me. You might be an expert of my medical health, but you are not the expert of my lifestyle. You're not being inclusive to meat eaters, you discriminatory moral monster. I had to change my entire dietary habit and lifestyle to the way which the doctor prescribed. Otherwise, my gout would just continue to persist. And it has nothing to do with worldview bias. It has nothing to do with our perspective. It has nothing to do with our vantage point. It's just the natural biological order of things. Gout doesn't care if I love meat. (laughs) Gout doesn't care if I love foods with high amounts of omega-3 fatty acids. I love my fish. Gout waits for nobody. Well, Martin Luther, the reformer, understood his role as a reform minister, as a doctor who prescribes prescriptions for souls that are sick. Jesus prescribes a way in which we can save ourselves from ourselves. And that's the irony is that we can't save ourselves. And so the only way that we can save ourselves is to rely on Jesus, put our faith in him, and to trust that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus has shed his atoning blood on the cross and that if we believe this and if we put our faith in God that raised this man, Jesus, from the dead, who is also God, and if we trust that we'll die with Jesus on the cross and that God will raise us up from the dead, with Jesus that once and for all will be eternally saved. This is not some kind of worldview bias. This is the natural spiritual order of things. In other words, it's reality. 
It's got nothing to do with our feelings. It's got nothing to do with exclusivity. It's just the way things are. That's the only prescription that's available for us. And so the case for exclusivity that everyone, including Christians, are making against Jesus, it's not really about exclusivity, but it's more about trying to refute this inconvenient truth, this inconvenient reality. But if we change our perspective and if we presuppose that Christ is the cornerstone, if we start thinking that Christ is actually the cornerstone, then preaching the gospel simply becomes describing reality to people who don't know reality. If my doctor, upon learning that I'm a meat heater, and maybe she hears me, and so she wants to spare my feelings, and so to spare my lifestyle, she tells me to continue to eat all the red meats I want, continue to eat all the seafood, all the fermented foods I want, continue to tell me all my fruity candies, what would happen to my gout? I think that we fail to realize in a pluralistic society that when it comes to eternal salvation, universalism is not an option. Jesus says he is the only way and that no one can come to the Father except through him. That's John 14. And Peter makes this very clear once again in Acts 4, standing before the Sanhedrin saying that Jesus is the only name that can save. Everything is completely contradicting and opposite to what the Sadducees believe, and so they've become sad. So they're responding and reacting with violence and persecution and oppression, something that Jesus foretold. The Sanhedrin has a real problem. They have a real problem with what Peter and John are claiming. It basically says everything about their doctrines are false. And mind you, the Sanhedrin was this kind of tribunal back in the day. It was kind of like the court for the Jews. And so they simply say, okay, fine. We can't deny the miracle that we saw, but at least we want you to stop speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. That's all we want from you. That's our command. That's this new policy we put up. You can't talk about Jesus. And so the question really comes up for us when we're reading Acts 4. What do we do when we're caught in the middle of two authorities? What do we do? To whom does our allegiance lie primarily? Who do we obey first? Do we obey the earthly authorities? Even when they demand to do things that seem contrary to the value of God's supreme authority? Well, here's the deal. God wanted to be our king. God was going to be, God is our king. He wants us to recognize him as king. And Samuel was actually very adamant. Samuel the seer, Samuel the prophet. He was very adamant. The kingdom of God, at the end of the day, it's a theocracy. There's nothing we could do about it. Democracy, all these other government systems are not going to work because it is a theocracy where God is king. And Samuel said, Israel, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You have to maintain God as king. But they said no. In the fallen state of the world, God had to make certain compromises to meet us halfway, to meet us where we were. 
See, humans refused to let God have order, and humans refused to let God be king, and humans refused to let God exercise his authority to distribute power equitably and justly like he did in the creation account. They didn't want none of that. So someone's got to do it. Someone's got to exercise power. And so God makes the compromise on our behalf. And this is on us. We refused and straight up rejected God as our king here on earth. Our fallenness said to God, no, we don't want you. And this is epitomized in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel says, we want a human king that will physically lead us into battles and will win our battles for us just like all the other nations. We don't want you, God. Get out of here. So God allows this kind of government to form. God allows the government of this world to have a monopoly of power. God bestows this authority onto our local government. And the monopoly of power is trusted with King Saul and is later trusted with the Davidic kingship, the lineage, and now all governing bodies. Because otherwise, there's no way that we can exercise power justly. It would just be crazy. It'd be anarchy. It'd be chaos. Kings were never supposed to be a thing for God. Monarchy was never supposed to be a thing for Israel. God intended to rule his people. But we said we want to be God for ourselves. We'd rather have a human king. And so what God does is he meets us halfway and he lends the kings of Israel and the, author the government of Israel this authority to rule. God ordains this authority and at least in human standards, the authority now has this monopoly of power. As of recent events in the summer, a lot of crazy stuff happened this summer. 2020 was a wild year. But what happened because in the summer, there's a growing fear and there's a growing suspicion, even to this day, and even hatred for any kind of authoritative body. You see that. A lot of the places, people just don't like the government right now. People just don't like the police right now. But as Christians, we have to realize that the authority that the governing and policing bodies hold is supposed to be a power, according to Paul in Romans 13, that is sanctioned and established and ordained by God. And so they are to rule with justice on God's behalf by wielding the monopoly of power that God had apparently and seemingly lent them, but with a very strict condition, with a very strict condition that the governing bodies do not destroy inalienable human rights, but rather they see to it that all creation under their authority flourish and prospers. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to say that every member of the government is ordained by God, that is predestined by God. But what scripture is saying is that the office of the government, the authority that is lent to the government is God's idea. See, here's the order. We got God, and then we have our government authorities, and then we have us citizens. It's this linear movement of obedience we need to be obedient to god who's at the top 
but we also have to be obedient to the governments which God gave authority to, so long as the government is in line with God in administering justice, we are responsible for being law-abiding, civilly responsible citizens. But the question remains, it's still not answered. What do we do if what the government wants us to do is directly in contrast with what God commanded? Well, the answer is clear when we observe Jesus. The answer is clear when we observe Peter who learned from Jesus. Civil disobedience. I'm not trying to cause a riot. I just want, if you're watching RCMP, I'm not trying to do nothing here. Civil disobedience is an amazing power in democracy. It's a power that is so undervalued in democracy. In democracy, and this is biblically rooted, People have the right to protest. People have the right to free expression. And it is on this grounds which the Canadian government is born. When the government becomes deaf to the will and character of God, which is justice, it becomes the citizen's responsibility to repeat God's voice into the ears of the government. So long as the government does not meet the criteria of being a godly government who upholds and administers equity and justice and kindness, we have the power of civil disobedience to disrupt the ebb and flow of life, to disrupt the comfortable position of the government so that God's values of love peace and justice and righteousness and mercy and grace and forbearance is made known. I'll even argue it's not just a democratic right to practice civil disobedience, but it's a responsibility. If we, the people of God, who belong to two kingdoms, God's, earthly, or God's heavenly kingdom and God's earthly kingdom, continue to exist in a state of unrighteousness and injustice because of the heads that are governing God's earthly kingdoms. We have to exercise our democratic right to protest and our right to civil disobedience. Peter recognizes that the religious leaders are supposed to be ordained by God. He recognizes that the Sadduceical order comes from a long line of priests which God had ordained. Their authority is ordained by God. But because of the corruption in that office, they become more concerned with enforcing law and order. They become more concerned with strong, strongholding their subjects with an iron fist than they are concerned with the livelihood and the dignity and health and life of the people, which is the very reason for which God had even trusted humanity with any kind of authority at all. So Peter says, what is right in God's eyes? You tell me, you Sadducees, what's right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to God? Peter knows what God wants because the will of God was revealed through Jesus and Peter knew Jesus. I think this is a really good definition of Missio Dei. I will quote an assistant professor of pastoral theology at St. John Seminary, 
she says this in one of her books, and I quote, God's mission is divine redemptive love that is actively at work in molding, shaping, and engaging the creation toward the fullness of life, the transformation of all that is into full relationship with God. That's so awesome. God's mission is life-giving. God's mission preserves dignity. God's mission is just. God's mission esteems humanity in our free will to the highest regard. And God's mission is exhibited by love. And so when any governmental authority is out of line with what God calls for, and if what God is concerned with is the restoration of the full person, and if the law prevents us from doing what God says is right, and if the government makes policies that are discriminatory or dignity-destroying or dehumanizing or environmentally destructive, then it is up to us Christians to stand up, albeit not violently, not starting a riot or an uproar or an insurrection or looting or smashing cars, but with reason and with logic and with love and with self-sacrifice and with peace. Peaceful protest is proper civil disobedience. When circumstances, and only when circumstances call for it, we have a right and a responsibility to peacefully protest and civil disobedience. I think this is what it's about. Let me tell you what I think Acts 4 is about. If Acts 3 is pointing to the work of the Spirit in the world in the name of Jesus, bringing forth physical restoration, bringing forth physical restoration of creation, then Acts 4 points to the same work of the Spirit that brings forth socio-political restoration socio-political restoration in the world, an order which is not only aligned with kingdom ethics, but it is also aligned with the character and virtues of God himself. God's not just about restoring our physical well-being. It doesn't seem like that's what God is about. It is taking the broken and marred and so far removed image of what things are supposed to be in the way that God imagined it, in the conception and God's creative imagination, and God willing, and Jesus conforming, and spirit moving is about reforming and transforming the broken systems of the world that perpetuate systemic evils into one which emits and exhibits traits and characters of God. It's about turning a human construct back into a God's divine construct. It's about participating in God's building of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The Pharisees were okay with crippled people staying crippled as long as the healing wasn't done on the Sabbath. The Sadducees were okay for the lame man to stay lame, to stay lame, as long as there was no healing done in the name of Jesus. And in our world today, there are so many acts of injustice just so that the authorities can impose what they believe onto the world to eliminate all threats and to maintain their grip of control. God's divine healing is not just about our personhood brothers and sisters, but God is very much concerned with restoring the economic, the
the social, the political, and environmental realms of this world. The new earth and new heaven that God showed Isaiah is a complete overhaul of the broken system that we try to put together that will become so amazingly transformed that the former things will not come to mind. The former things will not be remembered. But until the consummation of the kingdom of God, like Jesus, and as an extension of Jesus, like Peter, and as an extension of Jesus, us, we are called to stand up and fight the systemic evils of this world that are perpetuated by a broken image of what the governing authorities fail to resemble. May God give us boldness. May God give us wisdom. But most of all, may God give us love and peace for his people. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for the word. We want to thank you for the boldness of Peter and John who could have cowered at the persecution of the authorities. But Lord, then your gospel would have stopped right there. Lord, we want to thank you for a provision out of a way when the government that you've given authority acts corrupt. For the Lord, for God, you tell us through Acts 4, that even though we're oppressed, even though we're persecuted for doing what's right, for preaching the gospel, for being kind and loving to those who need us, to maintaining dignity, the Spirit is with us and we know we can be bold. So Lord, be with us. We want to participate in your mission to the world where you transform this earth so that it resembles your kingdom in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.